One of the things that I've mentioned on a number of occasions here as we've been studying through the book of Mark was the way that Mark structures this book. And if you remember, he structures it as a story or a journey where Jesus is going from Galilee to Jerusalem. And uh, he presents it as basically this travel or this journey of the Messiah being basically established and starting in Galilee, and on this plan to ultimately get to Jerusalem to face his ultimate fate, which is death, burial, and resurrection. And you notice there's some things in the, in the text a number of times, over 40 times the word immediately is used in the letter, or the book, because he's trying to um, sort of drive it deliberately, very quickly from Galilee to Jerusalem, because that's Christ's ultimate purpose. Remember, Mark's purpose is to portray Jesus as both the Son of God and the Messiah, and we see him do that through this structure and through some peaks in that in the book. Well, today we actually come to the end of that journey in some respects, meaning he finally arrives in Jerusalem, and he will now spend the remaining portion of his time in Jerusalem. So in essence, what we're doing is we're coming to that last week of Christ's life. Today, the passage we're looking at is often referred to as the triumphal entry. This takes place about a week before his crucifixion. So we're going to be looking at that today. Like I said, in some respects, it's the end of that journey. It's Actually, I'll say the beginning of the end of the journey. There's going to be three purposes we're going to look at today. Why did the triumphal entry take place? We're going to look at that. I see three purposes here. One of them was to simply fulfill prophecy. We'll look at that. By doing that, it establishes Christ as the King, as Messiah, which again is one of... John's, or one of Mark's purposes. The second purpose for the triumphal entry was to pronounce judgment on Israel. And then the third was to confront the corrupt practice of turning the temple into a marketplace. In other words, turning it into a business. So let's go ahead and look at the first one. We find the first purpose in the first 11 verses or so. I'm going to read those 11 verses and then we'll come back and work our way through it. As they approached Jerusalem at the Beth era at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he, meaning Jesus, sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? You say, The Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it back here. They went away and found a colt tied at the door, outside in the street, and they untied it. Some of the bystanders were saying to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? They spoke to them, and just as Jesus had told them, they gave them permission. They brought the colt to Jesus and put their coats on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their coats on the road, and others spread leafy branches which they had cut from the fields. Those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple, and after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve, since it was already late. So the timing and the manner in which Jesus actually entered Jerusalem was specifically designed as a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. There are primarily two passages that Jesus is sort of thinking about as he does this. One of them is from Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 9. I'll read that to you. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. 
He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, Mark doesn't specifically reference Zechariah's prophecy. Luke doesn't either, but John and Matthew both do. And they make it abundantly clear that this is exactly a fulfillment of the prophecy made by Zechariah. Which is why Jesus did it as a deliberate thing. Remember, he says, okay guys, go get me the donkeys. They're there waiting. You see that he is very deliberate in what he's doing. It's not like he just stumbles upon a donkey and says, I don't think I'll ride that in. My feet are a little tired. He specifically orchestrates the fulfillment of this prophecy. Prophecy. He's got a purpose in doing so, and it is to establish, reveal himself as the Messiah and King that was prophesied by Zechariah. There are two things of importance there. The prophecy refers to this Messiah as your King, who is coming to Israel. We know that that's a foreshadowing of what we're going to find in the thousand-year reign. Um, it's a fulfillment of the promise that David would have somebody eternally reign on his throne. But it also describes the manner in which it's going to take place. Zechariah was very pointed that he would come mounted on a donkey, but not just a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And that's exactly what Jesus does here. Think he's trying to make a statement? Absolutely. The people would have been familiar with Zechariah's prophecy. The second passage is Daniel chapter 9. I'm going to have you go ahead and turn there with me. Daniel chapter 9, starting in verse 24. I'll give you just a second to find it. Daniel makes this prophecy while the Israelites were in captivity in Babylon. Remember, they had been taken away captive by Nebuchadnezzar. They're now in captivity, and so David is a prophet at that time. Look at verses 24 through 25. It says, Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people in your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and anoint the most holy place. So you have known and discerned that from the issue of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there's a term of royalty, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks, and it will be, a, it will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then, after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. So basically what we have is Daniel making a prophecy. Specifically refers to the coming of Messiah. And you notice, he actually gives them the timetable. The sevens here refer to a period of seven years. And if you do the math, basically what Daniel says is, there will come a decree to rebuild the destroyed temple in Jerusalem, and to rebuild Jerusalem. Because remember, they're in captivity now. All that had been destroyed. And David says, there's going to be a total of 483 years that will pass between when somebody issues a decree to rebuild the temple and allow the Israelites to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild Jerusalem. In other words, the captivity will end. And he said there will be at least 483 years before the Messiah appears. Well, there's four different decrees that are made by the Babylonians having to do with rebuilding the temple. And nobody's really sure which one Daniel's referring to here. Because again, we have four different ones. Some of them are repeats of former commands or decrees that were issued that they didn't follow through on. 
So rather than bore you with all the details, I believe that most likely Daniel's referring to a decree made by King Artaxerxes around 458 B.C. His decree was actually a decree to rebuild the temple, to restart that process after King Cyrus had made a decree earlier that they just didn't follow through with. And I think that's probably the general consensus. Well, if we do that, if we, if we believe that King Artaxerxes' decree to rebuild the temple was the one Daniel was referring to, that would take us right up to the time of Jesus, somewhere between A.D. 27 and A.D. 33. So that's the first part of the prophecy, was the timing of it, that he was to come. The second part of Daniel's prophecy refers to the death of the Messiah. Because he says at some point the Messiah will be cut off. It's a reference to his death. The third part of the prophecy was the destruction of Jerusalem that David mentioned, or that um, Daniel mentions here. Look at verses 26 and 27 again. After the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come, that's likely a reference to the enemies of Israel, the prince of the, uh, um, who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. That's the city of Jerusalem and the temple. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of that week he will put a stop to sacrifice, grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will make desolate even until complete destruction. Basically, what Daniel's prophesying here is a total destruction of Jerusalem and the temple that's at Jerusalem. When Jesus prepares to enter Jerusalem on this day, he has these things in mind. Now, what's interesting about this is we know that Jesus came into Jerusalem fulfilling Zechariah's prophecy, appearing at the time when Daniel says the Messiah, the prince, royalty, king, will appear. But Daniel also says that the Messiah, the king, the prince, is ultimately going to be cut off. We'll know that takes place just a week later. We also know that in AD 70, the temple was completely destroyed, Jerusalem was completely surrounded, and 1.1 million Jews were slaughtered by the Romans. Israel was, or Jerusalem was decimated. So what we have here with Jesus entering into Jerusalem is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. In other words, it's a pseudo-coronation, if you will. The king actually arrives on the scene just as promised, the Messiah. And it's a way of declaring that he is exactly who the Old Testament promised. Both of these prophecies refer to an anointed ruler and king. That's exactly how Jesus was hailed as he traveled towards Jerusalem. It says he arrived riding on a colt, exactly as described. He specifically orchestrated it. His followers laid their garments and leafy branches on the road. The whole processional is a royal processional. If you do some work on history and you look at, look at what um, they were doing, it was a royal procession. They were treating Jesus as a king, as royalty, on his way down to Jerusalem. The text even tells us they were praising him as royalty. Look at Mark chapter 11, verses 9 and 10 again. Look at what they're saying. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. They're recognizing Christ as the king 
ultimately the king descendant of David. Look at Matthew chapter 21. We've talked about this earlier. Why do we have so many Gospels? Because each Gospel provides a unique aspect to what we're looking at. So we have additional details in Mark chapter 21, verse 9, about what they were saying. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Again, you got this royal language that they're using. Look at Luke chapter 19. Verse 38. It's even more pointed here. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And so what you have in this crowd here is they associate him with the kingdom of David. They refer to him as the son of David, meaning he's royalty. They specifically refer to him as king. And so what you have in the triumphal entry is the arrival of Israel's king, as prophesied in the Old Testament. And seeing as Jesus orchestrated it very specifically, what we see is that he deliberately is saying, I am now fulfilling the king's arrival to Jerusalem as prophesied by Daniel and Zechariah. There's no way to get around that. Now, let me give you some myths surrounding the triumphal entry here. The first myth is that it didn't actually take place in Jerusalem. Did you catch that in the text? Rather, it occurs on the road down to Jerusalem. In fact, the text tells us, after this is done, Jesus entered Jerusalem. So this picture that you may have seen in in the movies of Jesus parading around the streets of Jerusalem with everybody hailing him as king is not accurate. It was on the way down to Jerusalem. Once he arrived in Jerusalem, it was actually pretty quiet because it tells us he simply went into the temple, hung out for a little bit in the temple, and left. So this was all taking place on the way down to Jerusalem. The second myth is that it wasn't the inhabitants of the city who were participating. The people here that are praising Jesus, calling him king, are his followers. Now there were some from the city, the text tells us, that went out to witness and to watch it. But those that were praising Jesus were not the Jews of Jerusalem, but his followers. It says those who went before him and after him. And so they had cre- his followers created a processional. Why? Because his followers recognized who he was. They knew he was the king. And so they created this processional down to Jerusalem to introduce the king to Jerusalem. Now I think that's partly why that's important. There's this other, I guess I'll call it a third myth. And it makes for great preaching, but great preaching isn't always accurate. <laughs> Just because it sounds good. But you get this picture of how, and you hear this oftentimes said, you have these Jews who, were, when Jesus came into Jerusalem, they were just praising him and accepting him as their king, but a week later the same Jews were crying out for his crucifixion. That's not at all reality. That's not the case. Because again, it wasn't the Jews of Jerusalem that screamed out to crucify him. They weren't the ones that created the processional claiming that Jesus was the Messiah. Again, that's in the text. Maybe that's one reason why Jesus cries out from the cross, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. They're all ignorant. It was only his followers that truly understood who he was and what he was fulfilling here. 
The second purpose we find in the cursing of the fig tree. We're in uh, verses 11 and 12 of Mark. Jesus entered, again, this is after the processional, Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple, and after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve, since it was already late. And the next day, when they had left Bethany, he became hungry. Seeing at a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if perhaps he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. So he said to it, May no one ever eat from you again. And his disciples were witnessing. I want you to jump down to verse 19, because he finishes the story there. When evening came, they would go out of the city, and as they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from its roots up. Being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look at the fig tree which you cursed, because it's withered. And Jesus answered, saying to them, Have faith in God, for truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted to him. Therefore I say to you, all things for which you have prayed and asked, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted to you. Whatever you st- or whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. Verse 26 is in question. We don't know if it's part of the original text or not, but it says, But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your transgressions. What's going on here? I suspect the first thing in your mind is that um, you may be wondering why in the world Jesus gets upset at a fig tree and curses it when it's not even the seasons for figs yet. Is anybody anybody a little puzzled by that? I, see, I know what's going on in your heads. Okay, I know how you get sidetracked. It's like the what was it, up, movie Up when the dog squirrel turns his head. I lose all of you, right? So if I continued on without explaining this, you might be thinking about that and this, everything else we're going to look at. So there's all kinds of suggestions made about why Jesus did this. And to be real honest, most of them are somewhat unsatisfactory. However, what we do know is this. We know a few things that I think will help us figure this out. Fruit trees typically um, have their first fruits, if you will, appear when the leaves are very small and begin to bud. Okay? So when you look at a fig tree and it's springtime and you begin to see the buds come out, there's usually this little tiny fruit that appears on it. And it's sort of like first fruit, but it's not necessarily super edible. It can be eaten, about the size of a a little walnut maybe. And so typically that'll start to appear in the springtime. But the reality of it is, once you see a fig tree in full bloom with all of its leaves, it ought to have fruit on it. Jesus even tells that, uses it later on as an example in Matthew, 20, or Matthew um, 23, I'm not Matthew 23, Mark chapter um, 13, um, where he refers to watching the fig tree. When it's in full bloom, you know that Christ's return is almost there. Why? Because the, it's, the fruit's ready. And so what you see here is you've got this tree that even though it's not the season for figs, is in full bloom, and it looks like it is ready to provide fruit. That might be why Jesus, when when the text tells us here that Jesus went to see it, and notice it says this, if perhaps he would find something on it. In other words, Jesus looks, sees this tree full of leaves and thinks, huh, not the reason, or not the time for figs yet. However, there may very well be figs on it because it's in full bloom. So maybe it's got its figs ready to go. But you see, the tree is a little bit deceptive. 
It's got all the leaves. It should have fruit. Even if the timing's not right, it's saying, I've got fruit. So Jesus shows up. He finds it's all a scam. It's all a sham. The tree is deceiving him. So he curses it. And we find that the next morning, it's all shriveled up and dead. All the way from the roots up through the branches and the leaves. The second purpose we find in, the, in um, this episode, uh, this, this initial very first entry into Jerusalem here where he curses a fig tree, the second purpose we see here is that it's a way of showing God's judgment against Israel because of the false facade of religiosity, but there is nothing there, just like the fig tree. There's all the pomp and circumstance. There's the big temple. There's all the priests and the garb. And everybody comes into Jerusalem and they do all the religious celebration. But spiritually, there was absolutely nothing there. Does it remind you of any churches? With all the religiosity, the big buildings, the fancy stained glass, all the talk of God and holiness and righteousness, and you enter them and they are absolutely spiritually dead inside and that's what Jesus found with Jerusalem and so the cursing of the fig tree is a way of demonstrating God's judgment of Israel for the false facade we've seen elsewhere in the scriptures where Jesus condemns the Pharisees for all their fancy outward displays of religiosity but he says you're simply doing it with your lips but your heart is far from me and that's exactly what happened with this fig tree Even though it was out of season, it was saying, I got figs, come see the figs. You know what, at that moment it wasn't a fig tree, just a tree with leaves. And so Jesus uses that as an example of God's judgment against Israel. It's also interesting that, and I think it drives home Mark's point, did you notice that this story of the fig tree is like bookends and there's something that happens in the middle of it? wonder why Mark maybe did that? Why not just tell the story and then move on? Because he puts right in there when Jesus goes into the temple and he discovers something about Israel, their false religion. And Mark does that to drive home a point. He gives us, and we'll touch this in a second, but he gives us this great example of why Jesus rebuked the fig tree. Because it's what takes place between him cursing it and showing up the next morning and seeing it shriveled up. So Mark, again, the, the way Mark arranges his gospel, and this is, a great, this is a great lesson, I think, for you kids when you're, when you're going through school and you're learning about literature. Man, sometimes the author speaks wonders through the way simply that he arranges things, the order he puts things. That's what makes the Bible one of the greatest pieces of literature in history. It's not just what it says. It's the way God arranged it. And he, it is great literature, and Mark is a master at that. So he wants us to see, now as we go back up and we look at what Jesus did in the temple, as as serving as the purpose for why Jesus was so harsh with this fig tree. It was an example of his judgment against Israel. So there's no question about this event here being both symbolic and prophetic. The Old Testament routinely uses the fig tree as a symbol regarding the spiritual nature of Israel. And you see examples like this in the Old Testament where this robust, fruitful fig tree God uses as an example of a fruitful, spiritually vibrant Israel. 
But then the Old Testament also uses a fig tree when it's spiritually dead to refer to Israel being spiritually dead. So we see the example in the Old Testament carried right through here to the New Testament. Two additional things I want to consider regarding this event. Aside from the resurrection, this is the last miracle that Mark records in the Gospels. Do you think that might be significant? His last miracle before the miracle of the resurrection is his judgment of Israel through the cursing of the fig tree. That's significant. It says a lot when God's last miraculous movement is judgment, at least for a period of time. We even see that in the book of Revelation when you get into the the um, seven seals that Jesus is releasing in the first few chapters of the book of Revelation. Right before, between the sixth and the seventh seal is where it clearly indicates God's wrath. It might be before that, but there's, there's a pretty distinct difference between those two, t- two seals. And it's separated by 30 minutes of silence where God just sort of stays quiet for a little bit. And that's exactly what happens here with Israel. He stopped speaking through Israel. He spoke through the church after this. And so this last miraculous act here as a judgment against Israel, I think is pretty significant. It's God's final act with Israel until what Paul refers to, which is Israel's salvation later on, when God finally will begin to pick up the pieces with Israel again. Right now, they're in a state of rebellion and disobedience. In fact, I told Amy this morning, I came across an article. You want to know how the enemy works? Consider this. Whether you love or hate President Trump, you have to admit that he has been very pro-Israel. He's done more for Israel, at least verbally and in some respects some of his acts, than almost any president in history. The fact that he made recognize Jerusalem as the, as the um, capital, the fact that he moved our embassy back there, the fact that he continues to aggressively um, speak out about Islamic extremism and their attacks on Israel. There's no question that he is pro-Israel. But a recent survey that just came out claims that 73% of American Jews still think the Democrats are more favorably or are more in favor of Israel. What have we heard from that side of the aisle recently? We've got Democrats in Congress that are condemning Israel for defending themselves. We've got all kinds of anti-Semitism on the other side of the aisle directed at Israel. And yet somehow, only about 20% of Jews in the United States recognize that. Why? They're still in rebellion. Their eyes are blinded by the enemy. Now again, whether you love Trump or hate him, the reality of it is, there's a pretty stark difference between those who support Israel and those who hate Israel. And why is it that by far a majority of Jews in the United States side with those who hate Israel? Because they're blind. They're still in a state of rebellion. They can't see clearly. Jesus' words here, may no one ever eat from you again, is pretty telling as well. It takes on special meaning when you consider that just a few decades from this declaration, something happens in Israel. And it's the total destruction of the Jewish temple and the destruction of Israel. I mean, the destruction of Jerusalem. You know what that means is that Israel no longer is a place of promise for the world. They will no longer have a voice. 
there's still no temple in Jerusalem, is there, folks? It's still gone. Up until that point, Israel was to be God's tool for bringing the nations to worship Him. But what happens here? He says, nobody will ever eat from you again. Nobody will ever learn from you again. Nobody will ever see God from you again. Why? Because of their spiritual state. Now we know that at least in the end, God turns His favor back to Israel. And as Paul says, Israel is saved. Why? Because they recognize their Messiah. But until then, nobody will ever eat from them again. Israel is not the spiritual capital of the world anymore. That doesn't mean God's done with them. Certainly not. We know. In fact, I had a great opportunity in Kansas last week, met a woman who was half Jewish. I think I shared the story with some of you that were here last week. Um, and I got to have a great hour, hour and 50 minute conversation sharing the gospel with her. And it all started from her saying I'm Jewish, or I was at least um, heritage-wise she's Jewish, she's not religious Jewish. But I was able to say, man, you know what? I'm grafted into you. I'm the dogs under the table getting the scraps. He's your Messiah. At some point I'm hoping the light bulb goes on for her. Let me ask you this. Do you think the church is immune from this? Remember, Jesus goes in and rebukes them and judges Israel now for their spiritual condition. They were supposed to be a voice to the nations. In fact, the Old Testament doesn't just say the Jews are saved. It says all the nations will be blessed through you. You're supposed to be that mouthpiece, that beacon of light. It's not what he finds. Again, do you think maybe we are immune to that in the church? I challenge you, go and read the first few chapters of the book of Revelation. Seven churches. Jesus has something positive to say primarily about one. The others he warns he'll take their lampstand away. He'll rebuke them. Because they became just like Israel. It's pretty sad, one out of seven churches. You know, in some respects, that sort of parallels what we see today with all the denominations that have gone off the rails. You know, we're in a very interesting time and place here in the United States where um, the evangelical church, which is where we would fit, have always been a strong voice in the United States. In fact, we've been a strong voice around the world. Much of policy of the United States and how we've behaved around the world has been driven by our Christian heritage. We had a strong voice. God used us mightily. The nations have been evangelized primarily because of the American church. We have sent out more missionaries to more parts of the world than any other single country on earth aside from Israel in the first century. Think about that. And where do we stand today? What's happened to the American church today? Look at the things we accept, the things we wrap our arms around, the things we say are normal. Amy and I have been watching this stuff up in Delaware with the drag queen coming in and teaching classes, or going to be teaching classes in June. You know what? The stuff is filthy. But yet there are many within the church that see no problem with it, or those who say they're in the church. We just watched the stuff at Taylor University not too long ago with Pence speaking, with what appears to be a larger portion of the student body and alumni that were condemning him for his stance against homosexuality. What's wrong with that, folks? 
Paul says that the apostasy will come. And he's referring to the church. Sounds bleak, doesn't it? We're not immune to it as a church. It is so critical that we stay close with our Lord, with our Savior. That we, He says that we abide in Him and His Word abides in us. We don't want to be like Israel. We don't want to be like the six out of the seven churches in the book of Revelation. We must abide in Him and His Word abide in us. I'm going to say something here that might get me in trouble, but you know, local churches are disposable people. Do you think God needs the local church when they're in active rebellion against Him? If He judged Israel, His chosen people, do you think He won't judge churches? I think we're in that that time. I think we're going to see in the next couple of decades here some real challenges to the American church. We see it happening all over the world. I know that's bleak, but there is hope. God always has a remnant, does He not? This is real, I think. We see in this exactly what we see elsewhere. We are told that God chastises His people because He loves us. He chastised Israel because He loved Israel. He will not refrain from chastising Christians or chastising the church. I think there's a reason why when we look around, we see churches that have at one time been these great voices and now are gone. Because they became apostate. And God said, I'm taking your lampstand away, just like he does in the book of Revelation. I don't want us to be that kind of church. I don't want any church to be that kind of church. We have to abide in him. Let's look at the next piece here. The third purpose we find in, the, in this text is the cleansing of the temple. And it was sandwiched between the cursing of the fig tree here. And that purpose is that Jesus confronted the abuse and corruption of their religious practices. In other words, what their faith had become. The Gospel records two times, actually, where Jesus cleansed the temple. They're not the same event. John, chapter 2, records something that happened very early in Jesus' ministry. Mark here is referring to a second cleansing of the temple. I think this is interesting, that one of them happens at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, and the second happens at the very end. It's pretty telling. In this instance, just like the first, when Jesus enters the temple, he finds a massive marketplace rather than a place or a house of worship. Look at uh, verses 15 through 18. Then they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and to say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of iniquity, or a robber's den, some of your translations say. The chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. So this event takes place in what's called the Court of the Gentiles, which was this large outer court area that surrounded the actual temple. And when Jesus arrives, what he finds is a giant bazaar. Not bizarre, but bazaar. Make sense? Basically, a big marketplace. 
you know, like downtown Columbus and their arts festival. It's what he finds when he enters. During Passover, people would not travel with their sacrifices. Can you imagine that? You're coming from miles and miles and miles away. They couldn't bring all their sacrifices because they sacrificed doves and cattle and other things. They also brought financial gifts to the temple. So they didn't travel with these. Instead, they actually had to purchase them once they arrived. Okay? It's much like, you know, Amy and I travel up to Green Bay every year. We don't take all our groceries with us. Why? Because we can buy it there. Much more convenient, right? We've got to pack our van with all the other junk we need to carry. It's not enough room for our food. So we buy it when we get there. It was very similar back then. And there were these places outside the temple, these markets, that they could buy the stuff they needed. The other thing they needed to do was they had to pay the temple tax. And you could only pay the temple tax with what's called Tyrian coinage. Basically, you couldn't use Roman coins to pay your temple tax because they didn't accept it. So you had to exchange your Roman currency, which is what everybody had. You didn't run around with the other stuff. You ran away with the Roman currency because you needed it to do your everyday business. So they couldn't do that. So when they arrived, they had to exchange that for temple currency. So what what happened here, Caiaphas, who was actually been a high priest at one point, just about this time or shortly before, and um, he's kind of looking around, he's going... You know, all these people come from all over the world and they do all their business out there. They buy their sacrifices. They exchange their coins. Huh. Bells start to go on. If we took over all that, we could make money. So we'll set up our own marketplaces inside the temple to compete with them. And we'll sell the livestock to people here. And we'll do the coin exchanges all here. And we'll do it and make a profit. And so the money changers would charge a fee an exorbitant fee to exchange the currency. You want to make your temple donation? Well, we'll sell you the coins you need, but it's going to cost you X. Likewise, huge markups. You go to buy a few doves and, you know, so a week ago, last week, the doves were three for a coin. Now I get one for the same price? They're ripping them off. Isn't that the way it kind of works? I remember after 9-11 happened, I was over in Pickerington the next day, and literally there was a gas station there where the gas price had doubled. It's called price gouging. Supply and demand, right? It's illegal. It's corrupt. It's dishonest. It's one thing if milk prices go up or down based on demand. It's a totally different thing when somebody goes, huh, I can take advantage of this and put some money in my pocket, and you start ripping people off. There's some who look at this and say, well, Jesus, when he used that phrase, you know, a den of robbers or a robber's den, he really wasn't referring to that. And it's pretty clear, you look at the language, it's exactly what he meant. He walks into the temple, which is supposed to be a house of worship, especially the temple courts. The Gentiles, God-fearing Gentiles that would come to worship Israel's God, Yahweh, could only go into the court of the the Gentiles. They could not go into the temple. Right into the the, the most holy... They had to stay back. But it was supposed to be, based on what Jesus says here, it was supposed to be a place where they could come and worship and to pray. But you have these corrupt Israeli leaders who have turned the court of the Gentiles into this massive marketplace of corrupt business. Any reason why Jesus was upset? I want you to turn to 
Isaiah chapter 56. Jesus quotes a couple of passages here to drive his point. Isaiah chapter 56. Let's read the verses 6 through 8. Also the foreigners, that's the Gentiles, who join themselves to the Lord. These are God-fearing Gentiles. When they come to minister to Him and to love the name of the Lord, to be His servants, everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even those I will bring to my holy mountain, Jerusalem, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. That's the court of the Gentiles. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable to my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for who? All the peoples. Jesus quotes this. This is supposed to be a house of prayer. But you've turned it into a robber's den. A place of corrupt business practices. All thanks to Caiaphas. Who's supposed to be the high priest. We see the other objection there. The robbers did. I want you to read Jeremiah 7 with me. This is where Jesus draws that from. Jeremiah chapter 7. Let's actually back up to verse 8. Behold, you are trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, and commit adultery, and swear falsely, and offer sacrifices to Baal, and walk after other gods that you have not known? Then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered, that you may do these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, declares the Lord. Basically, Jesus is accusing people in the temple of idolatry in this case they were worshipping money the gold and their silver go back to Mark chapter 11 how do we suppose the chief priests would respond to this oh you know you're right this is wrong this is corrupt we shouldn't be doing this let's clear out no Jesus is the one that has to tear the tables apart. Jesus is the one that has to tip over the tables. There's no way to get around this. He was angry. Some would say violent. It's righteous anger. Because the leaders wouldn't do it. So Jesus did. But look at their response, verse 18. The chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him. For they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. So after Jesus goes in there and overturned the tables of the money changers and the one selling doves, the response of the leaders is, he's killing our business here. We've got to destroy this guy before he takes away our livelihood. Again, do you think there's any parallel maybe between that and what we might see in the church? Do you think we're immune to that? I think I mentioned a couple weeks ago, one of the things I've admired about John MacArthur, I appreciate a lot of his teaching, 
I don't want to build the man up or put him on a pedestal. I'm not trying to do that. But one of the things I appreciate about him is that everything he teaches is available for free. All of his sermons, it's all free. Which is actually fairly rare for many ministries. The Master's Journal, which comes out of Grace, or comes out of a Master's Seminary, absolutely free. It's technical articles written by the scholars at his seminary and by others around the, around the nation. All available. We look around the church today and oftentimes what we see are, in churches are more akin to businesses and business models. Decisions driven by how much debt they have. Or the whole new, one of the things that disturbs me quite a bit is the new church planting model, which instead of doing what, say, Grace did, many of the Grace Brethren churches around Ohio, or around at least Central Ohio, were planted by Grace. Uh, Dustin and I talked, I think, well, did we talk about this this week? Maybe with somebody else. Um, Pastor Jim never desired to become a multi-campus pastor with 18 campuses being beamed in so that people could see his big head on the screen. Instead, it was send out our best. And he stayed at Grace. What do we see now in so many of these large mega church campuses? You have a senior pastor who gets beamed in. He's the voice. He's the, and it's campus, and we'll do another campus, and we'll do another campus that we control. We saw that most recently with the whole harvest in, in, um, in Chicago. You're familiar with James McDonald, Walk in the Word Ministries. Um, eight or nine campuses, massive amounts of debt. People have now been coming out of the woodwork talking about what drove a lot of that, the financial corruption that was involved with that. Just last week they announced that they're looking into, their, the authorities are investigating the fact that he may have hired or tried to hire hitmen to kill some of his opponents. Two people have come forward and said they were both approached. Not shocking when you consider many of the other things, the slush funds, the million-dollar salary, the abuse and other things that were all taking place as this monster complex of authority and power was built that now has destroyed lives. I don't do that to point fingers as much as to give an example of what so oftentimes happens in our churches today when it's more about the business of ministry than it is serving God's people and shepherding God's people. We're not immune to it. God doesn't want the church to be run like a business. Now, you have to have business practices to manage finances and and other things, and that's not at all what Jesus is condemning, because even the temple had rules. What he was condemning is this idea that God's business is turned into your business. And I think the church has to be very careful. I think one of the reasons we are losing our effectiveness as a global church, if you will, at least a universal church here, is because we've lost sight of that. Many churches get caught up in making decisions based on what might make them popular or what may draw in more people or what, may, um, what they may have to do to manage the massive amounts of debt they've put themselves in. I'm not a huge fan of Francis Chan because of some of his teachings in theology, but one of the things I do admire about Francis Chan is years ago he was pastoring a church of 5,000 people and he went, this is nuts. We're going to spend millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars to feed these people who show up on a Sunday morning for an hour and a half and get entertained and then go home and do nothing. And he left. 
He does small house churches now. Got to give the guy credit. I'm not saying that's necessarily the right way to do things. I'm not saying big churches are bad. Don't get me wrong. What I'm saying is when it becomes really clear that this is a business and what drives that are business decisions instead of the Great Commission, we have a problem. And right now, the largest, most popular method of planting churches is a big mega church, multi campus, cult driven churches. We have it happening here in Columbus. Sounds judgmental, sounds like I'm pointing a finger, but we need to look around. It does not honor God. Again, it's not about being a big church or a small church, that's not it. It's what drives that and what's behind it. When you see something like what's happened at uh, McDonald's Church and the way that that church protected this behavior for decades, and now some of these people are coming out and confessing, saying, we enabled this, we did this, we knew what was happening, we knew about the abuse, we knew about the finances, the slush funds, we knew about all this stuff, but we had to protect the church. We didn't want it to affect the church. We had to protect this man. And it's all come to a head. Like I said, people's lives destroyed. How might Jesus respond to that, based on what I see him doing here with Israel? Not too kindly. Based on what I see in the book of Revelation, not too kindly. So, what do we see in this? Basically, we see Jesus coming into Jerusalem as the rightful king, Messiah, as Mark has worked at to help us to understand. Leads into Jerusalem, gets there, nobody accepts him as king. He sees the disarray. He sees at this great time of Passover that's about to take place, this false worship, these, these people that are supposed to be the voice of God. They're supposed to be a place of worship for the Gentiles. And he finds none of that. So he ultimately pronounces judgment on Israel because of it. That serves as a warning to us, does it not? It should. It tells us what's at the heart of God. This place should be a house of worship, not a corrupt place of business. That's what honors God. And so what we have is Jesus coming in, again, finishing his journey, arriving at Jerusalem. And as we'll see over the next few weeks now, some final teaching that he gives to his disciples, his final preparation for those disciples, and ultimately completing the journey with his death, death, burial, and resurrection.